The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical firsthand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. We're back at the Social Coast Forum 2020 in Charleston, South Carolina, and with our conference co-host, Bill O'Byrne. Welcome back to the podcast, Bill. Glad to be back, Peter. Joined by a very special guest. I actually think that one of the first practitioners in the Estuarine Research Reserve System from the staffing level, Chris Fort, is here director of coastal training programs at the wells near the national estuarine research reserve in wells maine which we will be calling the wells reserve for short welcome to the american shoreline podcast chris thank you happy to be here well chris uh i think there's so much that we have to discuss today but i think the right place to begin is to learn about the wells reserve would you talk in pictures and tell our audience a little bit about this beautiful place. Yes, I'm going to take a little liberty here and I'm going to pretend it's summer at the Wells Reserve. So I'm going to picture summer at the reserve and my drive to work every day is up past a long meadow where up ahead of me is a beautiful farmhouse and a beautiful barn. And every time I make that drive up the hill to the Laud Home Farm, which is the home of the reserve, I'm thankful to be working there. So the top of the hill, which is where the farmhouse is located, is where our headquarters is right next door we have a barn where we do our education programs and then we have a research coastal ecology center right next door where the research takes place when it's not actually taking place out in the reserve and the reserve encompasses forest and meadows old abandoned farmland but also salt marsh and beaches and my favorite walk on the reserve is to leave the headquarters and head down past the old 
um, abandoned farmland down through the forest out to the barrier island beach. When you get to the beach, you see kind of a typical main coastline with houses along the beach. But if when you hit the ocean, you turn left or north and follow the spit of sand on Drake's Island, you get to the end of Drake's Island, which is my favorite view on the whole coast of Maine. When you get to the end of the island, you're at an inlet that separates the town of Wells from the town of Kennebunk, and it's where the Little River Estuary drains from upland into the ocean. And if you stand just right with your back to the ocean and you look in at the salt marsh, which is also shared, it's uh, the Rachel Carson National Wildlife Refuge and the Wells Reserve are side by side. So when you stand at the inlet with your back to the ocean and look inland, there are no houses. And when I take students or visitors, I say, imagine that it's 1650, because that's what the coast of Maine looked like before there were houses. Magical. And I just, I just, was great. I just have to ask, what is it like in the wintertime? In the winter, you can still do that walk. But you have to make sure it's low tide because the winter beach is very rugged. Sand tends to be removed from the beach in the winter and stored offshore. And what is under that layer of summer sand is cobble, like glacial cobble, big rocks, not gravel. And it's almost impossible to take that walk to the inlet in the winter unless it's low tide and you can get down to the inner tidal below the cobble. And it's still a beautiful walk, still nice to be out on the beach if it's not too snowy or windy, but it's still a good walk out to the inlet in the wintertime. In, in the summer, uh, are there days that you jump in the water? I don't know if my boss would like me to tell nope. <laughs> Well, no. look, your boss will never hear this. No, we have, when we have people visit and they want to meet and learn, learn about the Wells Reserve, especially the coastal training program, um, we do this thing called a listening walk where we walk and I might listen to what they're interested in, what they want to learn about the Wells Reserve, and then we'll counterpoint with, you know, telling the story of the things we do. And we frequently stop at that inlet, and the water doesn't totally warm up till Uh August. (laughs) But it is a good place to swim um, because the water, when it's tides going out, it's warm because it's watershed water. When the tide's coming in, the water never gets above 68 in Maine. Chilly. It's chilly. So this sounds like a really special place. Next to Kenny Bunkport, I guess, is the home of the Bush family uh, well, retreat. Kenny Bunk, which is a, oh, is that a, separate, a separate little spot, I believe. Yeah, Kenny Bunkport is where the Bushes live. Ah. And it's separated from Kenny Bunk by the Kenny Bunk River. Okay. So Wells and Kenny Bunk are separated by the Little River. And then Kenny Bunk and Kenny Bunk Port are sep- sep- separated by the Kenny Bunk River. Okay. How big is the reserve? How many acres? It's 5,000 acres, and some of that is co-located, again, with the Rachel Carson National Wildlife Refuge. About 50% of our National Estuarine Research Reserves share land with National Wildlife Refuges. Hmm. You know, one of the things we like to do, uh, so our audience can better understand the perspective that you're offering, is to get to know you a little bit. And how long have you been at the reserve? How did you get there? Are you a Mainer? And what got you into coastal uh, issues as a professional? Yes, I'm not a Mainer. Have to admit that first for the people that are Mainers. I've been at the reserve for 18 years. 
I arrived there in uh, 2002 when the coastal training program was started. That's when that program began for all the National Estuarine Research Reserves, so I was the first one to hold that job as the coordinator. Um, I'd come to Maine in 1995 um, with my husband. He managed the Rachel Carson National Wildlife Refuge, uh-huh. and we moved there when our daughter was five. And um, so I was in Maine before I got the job at the reserve. And I just grew up going to beaches. I grew up in suburban Washington, D.C. So the Chesapeake Bay was my watershed. And my first and best summer job was on the eastern shore um, working at the Chincoteague National Wildlife Refuge as a tour guide. So I started my coastal experience that way, growing up that way. Well, it is uh, clearly a special place, and just it's got to be so inspiring to be there. Now, here we are at the uh, Social Coast Forum, and I understand that you have you've given two talks. Yes. At at this conference, which I think is pretty unique. I I, I understand you're you might be one of only a few people to do that. Uh, tell us about what you've talked about. Well, the first day of the conference, one of the best things about Social Coast is they have trainings. So people that are getting time off work, taking the expense to come here, there are always half a dozen. They can get training right before the talks start. So I had a half-day training called um, Resilience Dialogues, and it was a training about techniques for stakeholder engagement for people that have to work with diverse groups where people don't always agree on uh, how to approach a situation. So it was skill building to build systems understanding and to teach people some way to really understand different perspectives. And then the second talk I gave was about the program called Resilience Dialogues that we've done in the National Estuarine Research Reserves to build that skill among people at the reserves doing collaborative science. Let's talk a little bit about that because it's clearly a principal theme of the Social Coast Forum is this idea of engagement with the community, communication. Um, First of all, how did your sessions go? Were you pretty happy with those? And when you applied the resilience dialogue practice in the reserve, can you uh, tell our audience a little bit about that process and, and what it yielded? Yes, well, I'll start first with your question about how the workshop went. First of all, I was amazed. There were 30 people there with amazing expertise. Every person in the room, you know, has been working with stakeholder engagement, and I was very honored that they would consider coming to a training because they were all working on complex projects all over the country. So the group was a great group. They shared a lot of knowledge. And the reason we started the Resilience Dialogues project is that the reserve system has been experimenting and switching science paradigms over the past decade. Um, We have a group we work with called the NERS Science Collaborative. And the Science Collaborative is a group that is partnered with NOAA, and they provide funding for projects that are tightly linked with stakeholders. So it's not kind of your traditional, a scientist wants to understand a system. It's stakeholders need some science and they need to solve a problem with the science. So the stakeholders and the scientists work together from the proposal writing stage, which is pretty rare for stakeholders to be around the table when the proposals are written. So there's a tight link between 
someone who needs the science and someone who, as the project progresses, they actually interact with the researchers to hone the result of the science to keep it on target for decision-making and policy. So could you just sort of explain um, uh, how the resilience dialogues worked in that respect? Who were the stakeholders? Who were mm -hmm. the, how that, that, that process or, or probably is working? Yes, and in our case, and this is a case of some of the other projects as well, there's two kinds of science collaborative projects. One is, you know, traditional scientific research still linked to stakeholders, and the other is called a transfer project. So a transfer project, something's been learned, on a full-on research project, and you want to move that knowledge to a place that wasn't participating with you. So in the case of the Resilience Dialogues, we had 10 years of collaborative science projects. In some cases, the coastal training program coordinators, in their role as linking of stakeholders to scientists, they'd learned some pretty valuable lessons and some of the lessons they'd learned the hard way. And 14 of us from 14 reserves said, wouldn't it be nice to capture that knowledge of how to link stakeholders with scientists and share it with the other people who didn't spend 10 years figuring it out and do a set of best practices for how do you engage people with diverse perspectives, scientists and community members, in doing science that solves problems. So the role was to capture the lessons from experienced CTP coordinators, and then bring them together with newer ones and also other colleagues that do this kind of work to share those lessons. So well beyond the boundary of the Wells Reserve, right. talking about, so would you mind illuminating a couple of the lessons that came out of that process? What, what is the trick of the trade? What makes it work? Yeah, well, there were, we did four key lessons for reserves. One was about language. And how when you get people around the table, they often aren't even speaking the same language. And it could be a biologist, a geologist, a climate expert, a public works director, um, a coastal, uh, le someone with legal knowledge. So they're, they're all agreeing that we want to prepare for climate change, for example. And each one has a piece of the puzzle, a piece of expertise. But in order to have that link to real world action, they have to first learn to talk to each other and then make sure that the people who would act on the science understand what they're saying. So one of the techniques is building that shared knowledge. And we use the example of the Hudson River um, Reserve, which when they started working on sustainable shorelines for the Hudson River, the tidal portion, they had um, engineers, regulators, community members together, and they weren't making any progress. So in that case, the Coastal Training Pro Program Coordinator, Emily Hauser, actually developed a written lexicon of terms where she interviewed each of the different stakeholders, created the lexicon to help say, when I say this, this is what I mean. And that team that started about 10, 11 years ago, they've subsequently gotten more and more used to each other and are accomplishing more as far as sustainable shorelines. Fascinating. And again, this focus on the, the necessity of this skill set mm -hmm. to actually have effective outcomes. It's not simply, this isn't kumbaya stuff. It's that making tough management decisions requires this level of engagement and understanding and uh, 
what a what a cool job. Are you an optimist about our capacity to respond to the challenge of climate or the challenges within the Wells Reserve? I am an optimist. I don't know why, because I taught an environmental studies class for 22 years to freshmen at the University of New England, and it was a survey class that every semester we went through all the environmental issues, talked about their causes, what's being done, but I'm still optimistic, especially when I'd look into the room of 18-year-olds and see who is coming up to help us solve the problems. And I'm also optimistic, like the Social Coast Forum. I go to lots of conferences, and this is my favorite conference, because it's all people telling their stories. And so many of the stories are local, because with social science, it's often at that local level. And you see what people are doing all over the country, and they're making a difference, and everyone loves their work. I have to say I agree with that uh, on this. The Social Coast Forum has absolutely, I mean, we were, my expectations were already so high looking at the the program and uh, expectations have been far exceeded uh, than from what I had coming in because, well, for one, the vibe, I've, I go back to Tyler's vibe check, which I've been doing on the pod here, but the energy here has been so positive and it really, I, I feel like uh, the folks who are here that are um, working on uh, trying to figure out how to make a resilient coastal community and a resilient shoreline and manage it thusly are optimistic about the future, but also they see the opportunities and, and I mean, audience i apologize because i've just been harping on it but it does seem that that this is the the social coast forum is the perfect place to talk about the marriage of our society and our response to uh how we value the space and how we're going to manage the space and climate change is kind of the perfect i'm not going to call it a catalyst uh i don't think that's right uh but it's 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 instigating a type of thinking that allows us to kind of be like, you know, you, I think you use the word experimental. It allows us to be a little bit more experimental uh, with the way we try to come up with solutions. And I just, the energy in this uh, conference has been super positive to me in that respect. I don't know if you have a a thought on that. It's not really a question. I just, it's just been, the energy has been so good. Yeah, and I agree with you. For everything from the open plenary, there's many different kinds of presentations, which is unusual for a conference like this. And you get everything from people sharing tools that they've developed to solve problems. We had a drama presentation the first night. And what shines through in everything is the passion that people are bringing um, to the solutions. And it's also that stakeholder piece in a way that we are out with the stakeholder community every day. We're not in a laboratory, we're not locked away or just walking in a salt marsh by ourselves, which is what I did for my master's degree. We're out with the people and we know that they care and that they wanna be part of the solution. And on that note, one of the themes that we've encountered, a term I'd never heard before coming to this conference is this note, this term boundary spanner, I believe is what it is. Will you uh, talk about what that means and how it is, how 
boundary spanning and boundary spanners are used to uh, help us try to figure out how to manage, become more resilient and manage for climate change. Yeah, and it does have, it has many different meanings if you're just going to stick to scientific publications, but kind of the common sense meaning is there are people working in different worlds to solve problems. Like there's a, a regulator that might be passing legislation about climate change and sea level rise and how far the setback has to be. Then there's a geologist studying exactly how hard, high the water's going to come. And the geologist is in one world and the regulator's in another. Well, frequently people are skilled enough they can just talk across worlds. But when you get a group of people in the room, like say you've got 30 people in their individual worlds trying to communicate, it sometimes takes someone who's able to bridge the ideas, act as someone who can get people to see different perspectives and work between the different worlds. And people also refer to like a boundary spanning object. And that could be a map on a table that people are gathered around. They all see, there's my home on the map. There's my beach. How can we look at this object and see what we care about and put little marks on the map or these are the things that are important to me. So in that case, it has a little bit different meaning. It, it sounds like a well, it's an essential role, the connecting role, the anti-silo role. I think it's a, an approach to understanding coastal space that we very much uh, buy into at Coastal News Today while we cover energy and advocacy and real estate and environmental health and all of the spectrum uh, because we're talking about a geographic space where we all, for example, in the reserve that you operate, the communities practices within that space very widely and they're uh, deep and important and you have to kind of contend with the community as a whole it mm -hmm. seems yes and the the support for the wells reserve is so strong we have kind of a unique reserve story so the national estuarine research reserves were created in the coastal zone management act of 1972 it said these reserves will be set aside as places where research can be done. Each reserve has an estuary that is a wild estuary with less impact, and then an estuary that's more under the influence of humans. And monitoring equipment is put into both of those estuaries to measure change over time. Wow. And that's kind of the, the scientific foundation. Ew. But in our case, the place where our reserve is was this beloved location. It was a very forward-looking farm in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And as the coast developed in Maine, the farm was no longer a farm and developers were eyeing the location of the farm. And citizens in the town of Wells and other local communities formed a group called Laud Home Trust. And their goal is, what can we do to preserve this farm, this land, this estuary system. And about that time, some folks from NOAA were visiting the state of Maine looking for a place to establish um, an estuarine research reserve along the coast of Maine. And they were met with open arms when they came to the town of Wells. Uh, people were lined up one by one from all aspects of life, business, conservationists, saying, we would really like a national estuarine research reserve here. So the Laud Home Trust raised the money that was needed to match, and an, and an entity was set up, a state-level entity, which is required to have a reserve. 
but it was the actions of the citizens that wanted to preserve the place. The way it was sp- intended to function. That sounds like a great yeah. uh, origin story for the reserve. Yes. Although it's not still a farm. It just still looks like some of the farm buildings, but now it's a place for science and uh, research and education. So you've been there since 2002. That's yes. 18 years. Uh, this monitoring program that you talk about, which is in the urbanized or more developed part of the estuary and the, the more... Um, um, undeveloped portion. Mm-hmm. How's the estu- How is the reserve? How, what's the state of the environment? What have you yeah, seen over the, the condition? How, how are we doing? How's the Wells Reserve doing? It's doing pretty well. The, the program is called the System Wide Monitoring Program or SWAMP, and every reserve collects data. Uh, the water quality data is pretty doing pretty well. The, the reserve that's pristine is the one I talked about in the beginning that you can walk to and pretend it's 1650. And then the Webb Hannet, even though the coast of Maine is pretty well developed east of Route 1, like our, our major area, um, the water quality there is doing pretty well. We're, we monitor things for nitrogen and dissolved oxygen. And one of we also monitor biological things. And one of the neatest data sets, if you're the kind of geek that likes neat data sets. Our audience will love it. <laughs> we have a data set about larval fish. And this is collected through a plankton net um, at the dock in the Webb Hannett estuary. So we have um, at least 10 years, possibly more, of data on planktonic fish, so small that you have to see the fish in a microscope. And we've seen the species that come in, species changing over time. And it says a lot about it can reflect climate impacts. It can reflect changes in species composition over time. And now the reserve scientists at Wells are collaborating with other scientists, especially at Rutgers, I think, of people interested in this data set beyond water quality that is about larval fish populations. Wow. What, such great data. Well, I was just saying, what, what are you seeing leaving and what, do you see, what are you seeing coming in? Well, I'm not, I'm not as knowledgeable about the fish part, but I know some of the larval fish that are coming in are considered more tropical species that you wouldn't normally expect, but the waters are warming. Um, in the Gulf of Maine, the waters are warming faster than almost any place in America. I think that's true. That's what we understand as well. Right. Yeah. Can you talk about that? I, I don't know if this comes up in the education programming that you do and in, in the outreach to the community, uh, but we have covered on Coastal News Today the Gulf of Maine changes, both in Gulf uh, of Maine shrimping and in the lobster fishery, I think also in clams. I mean, there's a lot. Uh, it's very dynamic right now. Um, can you shed some light on that? And And I'm interested in whether where your most serious or significant concerns are about what you're saying. Yeah, and well, we have four different structures at the Wells Reserve, and the researchers, like uh, Dr. Jason Goldstein is our research coordinator, and he does research on lobsters and is specifically looking at changes in lobsters that would relate to climate change, and I'm not as knowledgeable about the details on that, but We have an education program that is separate from the coastal training program, and the education program are the people that educate the community. 
and we have programs from preschool all the way up to college professors that bring their classes. And they can both learn about the research, but also learn about the habitats and how they've changed over time. So even though we do have, and we also have focused research on green crabs, which are an invasive species that has impact on the salt marsh because their populations have exploded so much that their tunnels and burrows into the marsh can cause the edge of the marsh to slough off. So we are doing research on green crabs as well. I understand there's a movement in Maine now to like eat those things. Yes, we, we, we had a workshop on green crabs and our uh, president of Laud Home Trust made a tasty little dish up to get people to taste green crabs, but there is a movement to create a fishery around Greek green crabs. Did you like it? Yeah. Are they yummy? I, I don't think I liked it that much, but that, <laughs> that could just be me. That could just be me. I like great. I grew up in Maryland. I love blue crabs, so right. it's, oh, it's hard, hard to, yeah, it's hard, hard to beat. You're, you're, you're going to be, you're a lost cause, I'm afraid. Yeah. <laughs> if you're from Maryland, yes. uh, there's just, you know, there's no play. There's no crab like there's the American substitute. blue crab. Right. Well, it sounds like a, a fascinating job. And I think you're making the best case I've heard for what the National Estuarine Research Reserve System is about. It. Uh, this was a great explanation. Um, I've heard it talked about. It's embedded in the community. And this is but it's the it's the fact that it was beloved by the community to begin with. And it's equipping the community to really understand it both in its current state, what's affecting it, how it can work. Uh, it just sounds like, a, what a, who came up with this? This National Estuarine Research Reserve, somebody was thinking ahead and it's doing some the, smart stuff. It's the best idea in coastal management. It's a great idea. And I've got a little more evidence for you about how much the people care about the reserve. We have a volunteer program that we have 300 volunteers wow. that help the reserve at one time or another. We have people that help plow the snow. We have people that um, lead nature walks, people that operate the visitor center. And new people come to town and they come right to the door and say, I want to be part of this. So it's one of the, the most robust volunteer programs in the NERS. So, Chris, um, if folks want to learn a little bit more about, say, the lessons learned from some of your projects or a little bit more about the reserves, where can they go to find out that kind of information? Yeah, the, the best place would be wellsreserve.org, which is our website. And the Resilience Dialogues Project is there, along with Jason's lobster research, along with the work of the education department, summer camps. We have a craft festival, a nature craft festival, an estuaries festival, and they're probably just getting now ready now. Maine takes a February break. That's how we get through February. Yeah, it is, it is cold be, up there. There'll be programs at the reserve in February, but wellsreserve.org, everything's in one spot. Great. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Chris Ford, the Director of Coastal Training Programs at the Wells National Estuarine Research Reserve in Wells, Maine. Thank you so much for enlightening us on this spectacular part of the American shoreline. Yes, my pleasure. Come see us. Somebody told me, singing mama down the blues. Then a boy, take one, brother.